Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. You know, we've been walking through this issue of communion with God. And in recent weeks, we've been kind of looking at our vertical uh, relationship with God, specifically as it's kind of defined through union with Christ. Uh, We saw that the connection that we have with the Son through faith leads to a connection to the Father. Um, That's what we saw in Colossians chapter 3, that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Last week we saw from uh, John chapter 16 that our relationship with Christ is, is, is what has introduced the Spirit to us, and now we have this counselor that lives inside of us. We have connection with the Spirit. After this week, we're going to kind of turn our eyes and we're going to look at these inward disciplines that foster rich communion with God. We've already said, hey, union with Christ is kind of something that can't be taken away from you, but communion with God is something that ebbs and flows. And we're going to try and look at these means of grace that God has given us, prayer, uh, biblical study, fasting, uh, fellowship, all of these things that God gives to us that we can kind of foster rich communion with God. But this week, we want to pause and I want to consider not just the outward connection we have through union with Christ or the inward connection we have in communion with God, but I want to see the outward influence of our rich communion with God. And when I think about this, I remember reading this story in Numbers chapter 12 earlier this year and just thinking about how God vindicates his people. So here's our big idea this morning. Communion with God is our vindication before others. That you and I are in some sense vindicated or proved innocent through our communion with God. That is, that when someone else questions the things that we say, when you go to that coworker or to that friend or to that relative and you live in this overtly Christian way and they question that, your vindication comes through your communion with God. And I want to try and prove that here this morning from this passage and from other passages. We're really going to see that in two different phases. Aaron and Miriam speak against Moses and kindle God's anger in uh, Numbers 12, 1 through 9. And then Moses intercedes for Miriam's hearing, healing in verses 10 through 16. I want to pray one more time that God uses our, our time here this morning. Lord, teach us. Soften hard hearts. Use my foolish mouth. And glorify your name as we hear from you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, the first thing we see in Numbers chapter 12 is that Aaron Aaron and Miriam speak against Moses and they kindle God's anger. I'm going to read the portion Brian read all the way up until verse 9. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. 
And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. See, as we read this story, we kind of see uh, the, the formations, just even initially, of, of God speaking on Moses' defense. And we want to kind of dig into that, what is standing out. And first thing we see is that God hears Miriam and Aaron's complaint against Moses in verses 1 and 2. See, <clears throat> Aaron and Miriam have a complaint against their brother. Don't forget this. Miriam and Aaron are Moses' brother and sister. This is a family issue, Right? This, is, this should give us hope, parents, that we hear other siblings fighting and squabbling amongst one another, right? So we kind of get the, a window into this kind of family difficulty, and really they have two complaints. First, who did Moses marry? Married a Cushite woman. And this is really difficult because we know Zipporah was <clears throat> Moses' wife. Zipporah was supposed to be a Midianite. So here he's marrying a Cushite This kind of leaves us with three different interpretive possibilities. One, Moses had multiple wives. We have no reason to suspect that to be true. Uh, Two, uh, Zipporah was kind of of dual nationality, that she was from Cush but also from Midian, and it is related two different ways. Or three, uh, that this... Cushite was a way of describing her skin color. If you were a Cushite, you were actually from uh, Ethiopia. You would have had very black, very dark skin. And so uh, the critique against Moses is that she married a very dark woman. And so regardless, any way you slice it, they're critiquing who it is that Moses has chosen to marry. The second critique is a little bit more significant, isn't it? Notice their complaint in verse 2. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? It's funny because this uh, same complaint is going to be brought by uh, the sons of Korah in Numbers chapter 16. It's going to sound like this. You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? See, Moses is often criticized because of his unique relationship to God. And so the specifics of this complaint are, are, are quite simple. They claimed that Moses was not the only one who had interactions with God. It's as if to say your relationship to God is not as unique as you think it is. Sound familiar there? You go to work and you speak the claims of Christ. And what do they call you, a holy roller? You claim a specific relation to God that is not present. 
Notice what the passage says, and the Lord heard it. God hears a lot in the book of Numbers. If we were kind of just pace through the book of Numbers, we would find statement after statement of the things the Lord heard, the grumbling of the Israelites, and how he kind of responded. Numbers chapter 11, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. You see the same phrases used there. Numbers 11, verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. Numbers chapter 11, verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth. Remember when God provided the birds, the the meat for uh, the Israelites, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was even consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. See, Numbers is telling us that there is this clash consistently between a grumbling people and the righteousness and holiness of God. And he's saying, you cannot be in the midst of God and have this thanklessness and still be there. See, the truth is this morning that God hears and sees. I remember the 1990s song by Bette Midler. I can't believe I'm even mentioning this. God is watching us from a distance. God's not watching us from a distance. God is in our midst. He is hearing and seeing all of the things that we do. Just as he heard and saw the interactions with Aaron and Miriam. And so what happens is, in verses 3 through 9, is that the Lord speaks up for Moses. The Lord calls Aaron and Miriam to his tent. Look at verse 3. He says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. Let's back up and look at verse 3 for a second. Literally, Moses is the meekest man in the world. You should have a belt made, right? Meekest man in the world, like a title belt. What's really awkward about this statement is that Moses probably wrote it. Let that sink in for a second. Moses described himself as the meekest man in the world. There might have been some other possibilities there, but most likely he oversaw the writing of this and in humility was able to make that statement. Regardless, he's the meekest man in the world. And we might stop and say, what does it mean to be meek? Meekness is is the ability to submit. It's the opposite of our our self-vindicating, of our self-promoting that we see so often in this world, This, this idea that I have to put myself forward, I have to defend myself, I have to speak up on my own behalf. It's seen here in that Moses is so meek that he refuses to speak up in his own defense. So what happens then is God will speak up for him. This is where we see verses 4 and 5. The Lord invites Aaron and Miriam and Moses to the tent of meeting. And what happens is this cloud descends on this tent of meeting. That's pretty normal for the Israelites in these days. In fact, in Exodus 33, uh, the ministry of Moses is described and is saying, whenever Moses goes to the tent of meeting, uh, the cloud just descends. And God meets with Moses. But notice that, that the author of Numbers takes two verses to describe this whole scenario. This whole 
this whole story takes 16 verses, but two verses are describing exactly what's happening here as the, the cloud descends and Aaron and Moses and Miriam come into God's presence. It's as if we're kind of heightening the, uh, the showdown that's about to happen. It feels a little bit like if you were like me in, in grade school, you got invited to the principal's office, right? That's what this feels like. This passage feels like there's this rising tension that's happening here. What happens is that the Lord rebukes Aaron and Miriam for speaking against Moses in verses 5 through 9. Look with me there. Well, actually, look at verse 6. And he said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. See, see God descends upon this, this, this tent of meeting, and he describes his typical way of speaking through the prophets there in verse 6. And what he says is he spoke to them. He speaks to them through dreams or visions. It's likely what's, what Moses or, or Aaron and Miriam were describing in verse 2. See, God would speak to his prophet through a dream. We have a long history of this, right? Jacob in Genesis 46 has this dream from, from God. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, in the 30th year in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, and the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. Daniel and Joseph are interpreters of dreams. Peter sees a great sheet descending from heaven in Acts chapter 10. Paul has a, a dream of a Macedonian man. There are visions and dreams that, that God uses to, to uh, initiate his prophets. But then in verses 7 through 8, God describes his interaction with Moses differently, doesn't he? By way of contrast, he wants to, to kind of set Aaron and Miriam apart from Moses. He says, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. See, God wants to be clear here, doesn't he? Moses is different than the prophet Notice the ways that God speaks. He, he gives us four kind of qualifiers here about, about Moses. Moses was faithful in all God's house. I love that the New Testament author of Hebrews picks up on this. In fact, it's on our screen here that he kind of interprets it for us. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. See, Moses is faithful in his testimony that he hears the words of God, and that he speaks the words of God exactly as they've been presented to him. Now, the one place that God critiques Moses in the book of Numbers is in Numbers chapter 20, because what happens is that in verses 8 through 11, God calls Moses to give water to the people by taking his rod, the same rod that he threw down on the ground, the same rod that he's held on to for all these years, to take his rod to strike a rock in uh, this particular city and Water will come forth for the people of Israel. They'll stop their complaining. When Moses goes to do so, in verse 11, he doesn't just strike the rock once. He strikes it twice. 
And in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people and Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. See, Moses is denied access to the promised land because in that one instance, he wasn't faithful to the word. He hit the rock an additional time. See, when God says that Moses is faithful in his household, it means that Moses has followed God's word to the letter of the law, that he has faithfully executed what God has called him to. Secondly, what God says in verse 8 is that God spoke to Moses mouth to mouth. That kind of has a different connotation in our culture. We're imagining, you know, the kid at the pool that's drowning. But literally, it's, it's just the idea that we're speaking to one another. Elsewhere in Exodus, it's described as face-to-face. Listen to how Moses is described at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34. This is also on the screen here. And there was, has not arisen a prophet since, since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face-to-face. See, there wasn't another prophet like Moses because God spoke to him face-to-face. Moses is unique in that he intervenes or interacts with God like we do with our neighbor. So God speaks to Moses mouth to mouth. God speaks to Moses with clarity in verse 8. He doesn't speak to Moses in riddles. That is, he's not hidden from Moses. It's this strange passage in Matthew 13. We talk about it a lot here, but, but Jesus is, is there teaching the disciples, and he gives the parable of the soils, and his disciples come to him, and they say, my Lord, why do you speak to the people in parables? They're just confused. And Jesus returns to them in Matthew 13, and he quotes from Isaiah, and he says, so that seeing they may not see that there's things hidden from the eyes of those people that he's speaking to. And what God is saying here about Moses is that he doesn't hide himself from Moses, that he speaks with clarity to him. Finally, in verse 8, that that Moses knows God's form. What does that mean? This is after the fact that when Moses is on Mount Sinai and he receives the word, or the, the, the Ten Commandments from the Lord, He says, Lord, show me your glory. And what he does is God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he covers over it with his hand as he passes by, and Moses catches a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. He's the one who catches the form of the Lord, who sees it. And in case this kind of misses you, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet sees God in a vision, in a trance, and he says, woe is me, for I am lost For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To see God in our sinful humanity was to be lost, was to be done for. So Moses is unique. See, we just kind of back away from the passage for a second. We just recognize that when you and I are accused... When you and I are, are called to the carpet, as it were, isn't our inclination to self-vindicate? Aren't we inclined to kind of speak up for ourselves as we, we try to clear our name 
independent of God. See, what's happening here is Moses has been accused of abusing his power, and that from his own brother and sister. And if you're like me, in this moment, you might want to say, wait a minute, hold on, Aaron and Miriam, hold on, I, I have something to say on my behalf. Have you ever had to be your own advocate? Have you ever had to stand up for yourself? Anytime you, you, you get accused or, or, or called to the carpet on something, you have to speak up for yourself, and you're, you feel this tension because you're all of a sudden kind of advocating for yourself, and it just feels off, doesn't it? I remember a particular instance a few years back. I was a music leader at another church, and someone came to me, and they said, you know, the problem is that, that you just hate hymns. You just hate hymns, which now just seems like comedy because I love hymns. But he may have been, he may have had something there. But I found myself very frustrated in that moment because if I am to speak up on my own behalf, how do I speak up in any way that vindicates myself? It's an impossibility. And at the end of the day, I had to step away and say, what does it matter what this individual thinks? My conscience needs to be clear before the Lord. See, in his meekness, Moses is not self-asserting. In the midst of accusations, in the midst of confrontation with his family, in the midst of difficulty, Moses chooses to remain silent. Does that remind you of anyone? Are you reminded of anyone who chose to remain silent in the midst of accusations? Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, is standing before this kangaroo court, accused of all of these things, of unfaithfulness, of, of, of blasphemy, and he chooses to remain silent. First Peter 2 is calling slaves to be subject even to abusive masters. In order to give uh, these believers uh, an example, Peter looks to the life of Jesus, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But when he suffered, he did not threaten. Threaten, excuse me. See, Paul tells us that Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, even to the form of a slave. So Jesus is continually choosing meekness. And you and I, if we are in Christ but choose not to be meek, we are choosing not to be like Christ. It doesn't have multitudes of applications for our moment right now. Some of us are just so angry. There's just tension right underneath the surface. We are just angry. We don't even know why. And we want to just self-assert. We just want to yell at someone, whether it's at the parking lot at Walmart or at our workplace or wherever else. We just want to, to explode on someone. And Jesus is calling us to the meekness that he himself has exemplified. Put that thought on the shelf, and we'll return to it in a second. See, we want to come back to this passage, and in verses 10 through 16, what we're going to see is that Moses intercedes for Miriam. 
Look at verse 10. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh has half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Tragedy strikes, doesn't it? And God strikes Miriam with this leprosy in verse 9. And what happens then is that Aaron confesses his sin and pleads for Miriam to Moses. Right? And notice... What Aaron says there in verses 11 and 12, he calls Moses, my Lord. The disdain of verses 1 and 2 is gone. And now God has brought Moses back into this right place in Aaron's mind. And now Moses is going to intervene. I love how the ESV makes a note on, on verse 12 where the, the text says, or excuse me, verse 11, oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly. Well, the note there says that do not lay sin upon us. Don't punish us. Don't uh, hold the weight of our sin against us. Don't lay that on us. But the request for Moses not to punish them was a request to not hold this sin against them. And Aaron knows that Moses interce- if Moses intercedes, God is potentially going to relent. So what happens in verse 13? Moses intercedes. Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazareth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. See, Moses intercedes on Miriam's behalf. It's interesting what happens here, isn't it? We never hear about Miriam's leprosy again. And she's, what, Mo, what God intercedes it says is that, that Miriam should stay outside the camp for seven days. It's the same kind of... Uh, direction that is given to lepers in the book of Leviticus, that if you're, you're cure, cured or cleared of leprosy, you're supposed to remain outside the camp for seven days. And so what's happening here is it seems like God is kind of intervening and healing Miriam, but he's still making a public proclamation of her guilt. He's still recognizing that, that she has spoken against Moses, that Aaron has spoken against Moses, and God is giving clear indication to all indirect to all Israel, that uh, Moses was in the right, that Moses does have this unique standing with him that no one else does. Isn't that what's happening here? This is why he's advocating for these seven days outside the camp, as if to publicly vindicate his servant Moses. See, All of this kind of culminates for us to see that Moses is vindicated by his unique relationship to God. Moses is vindicated by his unique relationship to God. Moses, the meekest man in all the earth, intervenes on his sister's behalf, is vindicated by God. God's essentially saying, Moses relates to me like no one else in all the world does. But we aren't like Moses, are we? You know, we might 
come away from this passage and we might say, you know what we need? What we need to be vindicated before the world is we need just massive meekness. And we need to just buckle down and submit and just show ourselves like the church mouse that we were always called to be. We just got to kind of zip our lips, take it on the chin. We've got to do whatever it takes to just show forth meekness, and then God will vindicate his people. God will show the world exactly how valuable the church is. Or maybe your confrontation is with another believer, and what you're saying to yourself is, if I just show myself absolutely meek, what, what will happen is God will vindicate me in his due time. God will show forth exactly what happens. And we just think that if we put on this attitude of meekness and we just kind of work at it, what we'll do is we'll just kind of earn God's vindication before others. See, the problem is that you and I can never really be meek on our own. The truth is that you and I will never, ever truly be that meek. We can't actually be meek enough to, to make God vindicate us. We'll always see ourselves through this selfish lens. You ever go to the county fair or whatever, they have the fun house? And you go and you stand in front of the mirror, and the mirror is distorted, so it makes you look like you're like three feet tall and like 400 bills. It makes you look like you're extremely, like eight feet tall, but 100 bills. Right? It, it, it distorts the image that you actually are. And the tr trouble with our own sinful heart is that our, our sinful hearts deceive us. Jeremiah 17 makes this point very clearly. It says that the, the uh, the heart of man is deceitful, deceitfully wicked. And it deceives us into thinking that we're meek, that we're uh, self-effacing, that we're doing what's right. But truthfully, you and I are seeing things through a distorted mirror, through a distorted lens. When we look at ourselves, it's like those funhouse mirrors. We see ourselves differently than we actually are. And no matter, no matter how hard we try, we can never be meek enough for God. See, the problem is if we approach this passage and we think that, that we need to be meek enough for God to vindicate us, we've, we've read the passage backwards. We've forgotten a key component about what's happening in this passage. See, if we think that our meekness gets us into God's presence, we, we have it wrong. We're thinking poorly. It's actually that God's presence makes us meek. That as Moses is one who's constantly coming into God's presence, it is chipping off the old self of Moses. It is softening the heart of his servant, and Moses is being softened in the presence of God. It's his communion with God that is making Moses meek. We recognize then that Jesus was one who exhibited this true meekness because he had true fellowship with his father. Jesus had this unending communion with the Father as far as into eternity past and as far as into eternity future. He dwells with perfection with the Father, always with this give and take of glory and honor and love. And now he is exhibiting this true meekness at the cross. Jesus' meekness that led him to say, not my will be done, but thine be done in Luke chapter 2. It was his meekness that led him to a cross that he did not deserve. It was his meekness that uh, told him to wait for his father's exaltation. See, Jesus was truly meek and truly vindicated. Meek at the cross, vindicated at the resurrection. Meek in his death 
vindicated at his raising. See, as you and I seek to be united with Christ, we put on the meekness of his sufferings. And we wait for the exaltation for our vindication. So here's the truth, Christian. You and I might not be vindicated until Christ shows up and sets up his kingdom on the earth. Isn't that what we saw in Colossians 3? Colossians 3, we, we talked about it, you know, uh, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ who is revealed, Christ who is your life is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. That is the moment of our vindication. That is the moment of truth. That is the time when God shows his servants for what they are. See, our vindication before the world, before others, is our communion with God. And this all seems kind of theoretical, right? Kind of ivory tower out there. But I want to just stop and say, how are we tempted to self-vindicate, to show that we're actually in the right standing with God? What ways do we kind of grab onto that aren't God's means by which we try to show others that we're actually the right ones with God. I have four things. We tend to self-vindicate by our enviable life. We self-vindicate by our enviable life. You might be one who manages this pristine presence on social media. You post the pictures of your beautiful family, everyone's smiling, everyone's happy, and you use that hashtag blessed. You know what I never see? And I don't know that there's room for this in social media. I think it would be somewhat awkward, but I never see anyone use the word the hashtag repentance. That doesn't fit into our social media presence, does it? It doesn't fit for us to own our sinfulness, to own our repentance, to say, I was wrong. I, I needed to turn from this sin. I needed to turn from this. And honestly, as I've thought about this this week, I don't know that there's a good way to do that on social media. It would seem that if you, if you are constantly talking about your repentance, you might not actually be repenting. You might be showing others your repentance. We tend to do this. We, we self-vindicate through our enviable life. We think that if we show ourselves our life as blessed and beautiful and right, that we will just make everyone else around us jealous of God's goodness and blessing to us. And what happens then is we gloss over all of the bad moments. We pass by all of the ugly moments in the car when you're yelling at the kids. Done that. You pass over that time where as a dad you just lost your temper. You pass over those moments where you have just not carried out the priority of the gospel. So we self-vindicate by presenting ourselves of having an enviable life. The second thing we do is we self-vindicate through our superior knowledge. We self-vindicate through our knowledge, don't we? Sometimes it's biblical knowledge. Sometimes it's knowledge about other things, politics or, or other issues that are going on. We, we want to self-indicate. We want to show the world that we are right with God because we know better. 
We show ourselves as, as right with God because we know what the Scriptures say. We know the theology. We make the arguments. I used to be on Twitter until I realized how bad Twitter was for my soul. And I'm not saying that all social media needs to be abandoned. That's not my case. There, there are good things about social media. What I am saying is that there are places that my, my soul was inclined to this idea of self-vindicating through knowledge. And when I went and read the 240 characters from a lot of my friends, it was just a lot of criticism, a lot of just espousing of knowledge. I felt at times like we were just trying to say, I'm justified because I know more. So we self-vindicate by our enviable life. We self-vindicate by our superior knowledge. We self-vindicate by our good deeds. We just try to do good things. We just try to work out. We just put ourselves, like we just keep our nose down and try and work out all of these good things for other people. And we think that that's going to show the world or, or people that we disagree with that we're right passage in Matthew 7 where, where Jesus looks back at people and he says, many will come to me on that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles? And he's going to look back at them and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. I just want to hear say clearly this morning that your ministry fruitfulness does not translate into the right relationship with God that you might think it is. Sometimes it does, but not always. So we vindicate through our enviable life or our superior knowledge or our good deeds. Sometimes we, we self-vindicate through successful kids. You ever do that? It's probably a spin-off from the enviable life thing, but you come into contact with someone you haven't seen for years and they start describing where all of their children are in life and they say, well, my kid's doing this and he's doing this and he's doing this and he's doing th this. It just seems like they're trying to prove themselves. I feel like I've done that at times. I've tried to brag on my kids so that I, I feel and look like a parent that is justified, that is vindicated. See, underneath all of this is just this false notion that I can do something to earn my right standing with God. You know, it's true this morning that God's people are notable only because of God's communion with them. God's people are notable only because of God's communion with them. I'll say it a different way. It is God's grace to sinners that makes us noteworthy. As we are recipients of God's grace, that's the thing that defines us I love this passage in Acts. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have performed a miracle. They're called in front of the Sanhedrin to kind of give an account. And when they start speaking, this is what verse 13 of Acts chapter 4 records. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus 
Oh, that, that I would be content to be uneducated and common so that the presence of God in me would be astonishing to those that came into contact with me. Christian, this morning, would you embrace being uneducated and common, having nothing defining about you other than you were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Is that your heart this morning? Is that what defines you? Or are you just beholden to this self-vindicating effort? What we need to do as Christians is we need to lay aside this desire for us to prove ourselves worthy and to embrace the idea that God has made us worthy in Christ. And I love when I think about this story of Moses, because we might get a whitewashed version of Moses here in Numbers chapter 12, because he's the meekest man, he's vindicated by God, but we forget that Moses started off as a murderer, that Moses rose up and he killed the Egyptian who was beating one of his brothers or, or one of his fellow Israelites, that Moses was the one who stood before God at the burning bush and said, not me, God, send someone else. And through the constant refinement of God's presence and communion with God, he becomes the meekest man on the earth. I love this account because it gives me hope. All those times where the vileness of my heart wants to, to rise up and speak, and I bury it through the grace of Christ. I'm given the potential to put down my sinfulness, to be raised to new life in Christ, and to show myself meek only because of God's goodness. I was thinking about this this week, and God has put so many examples in my life of, of men and women who have exhibited meekness and shown me Christ. And I just want to share one example uh, this morning as, as I was reflecting on this. I was just thinking about God's goodness to me to see this. But there was a, a, a person I, I ended up taking to the hospital uh, for a minor surgery. And I, I'm waiting in the waiting room, and I'm waiting to be called back because I'm, I'm going to drive him back home. And uh, when I get back there, all of the nursing staff is stopping to talk to this individual. And it's become very evident that he's talked to them about his hope in Jesus because they're each stopping and talking to him about how they believe in Jesus. And within 15 or 20 minutes when he's interacting with these nurses and hospital staff, he has just so exuded the presence of Christ that it just leads to this, dare I say, worshipful environment that he's kind of drawn out the Christian faith of others around him. I, just, I love that because it, it just exemplifies what we're talking about here. Not a person who's self-asserting, but when, when he steps into a room, he wants to talk about Christ. I hope this morning that we might be those people who, who put off those patterns of just constantly self-vindicating, constantly speaking up for ourselves. And we embrace this hope of Muting ourself, exalting Christ, and waiting for our vindication when Christ returns. Let's pray.
Lord, we confess that we are self-asserting people. I confess that sometimes when I feel threatened, I want to speak up, I want to self-vindicate, I want, I want to be off the hook. This morning, Lord, make us a people that through the constant exposure to your presence are soft. They're soft before you and before others. Soft to receive criticism. Soft to the unwarranted accusations brought before them. Soft in their words. Soft in their speech. Soft in their thinking. Lord, allow us to be meek. Lord, you promise that the meek shall inherit the earth. Lord, let us hold to that by faith. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.